So a couple of weeks ago, I think it was two weeks today, on a Sunday evening, I spoke as part of the Galatian series that, that is going, is happening here at Eastgate. We're going right the way through the whole book of Galatians, and I was, I was speaking on part of Galatians 3. And I was talking about the importance of believing in who Jesus is, because that's the simplicity of the gospel, isn't it? That we believe in who he is, what he has done, and his ability to work in us and through us. That we don't work hard at being a Christian in that sense through laws or regulations or external motivations. Actually, where we work hard at is to know how God works in us and through us and to know Jesus himself. And if, if you want to, you didn't hear that message, you're welcome to go and, and download that. But I want to... I'm, I'm calling tonight's talk Believing in God Part 2 because I just feel like God had more to, to say on this subject. And one of the themes in Paul's letters, not just in Galatians is he uses this phrase called Christ in me, the hope of glory. You've probably heard that phrase before as a Christian. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And he spoke about how the mystery of the gospel was hidden, meaning, meaning that the, the, the revelation of the gospel comes at a particular time because hidden means it's hidden until the time it should be revealed from a biblical perspective. And part of that mystery is Christ in us. And it's a profound part of the gospel that Christ comes and dwells and lives inside of us. I grew up in a, in a, uh, a particular stream of church in my, uh, as, as my family went to, and I'd often hear God talk, oh, God, I'd often hear Christians talking about how they felt far from God. As a Christian, you can't ever, ever, ever be far from God. Because He lives inside of you. The language we use is not biblically correct. The issue is our awareness of his closeness, not his actual closeness. It's not about distance, it's about awareness. You know, if you, it's not uncommon in Christian circles to use that phrase, I feel far, got far from God right now. Well, you're not. The issue is you just don't feel it. And there could be a whole bunch of reasons why that is, but I'm not going into that tonight. But I just want to... I want to try and increase your expectation and confidence tonight for God to work in you and through you. Because that is the mystery of the gospel. That is part um, of, the, of the gospel message. Uh, Paul put it like this in Galatians 1. When God set, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles. Let's read that last bit there. He was pleased to reveal his son in me that I may preach him among the Gentiles. As a Christian, whether it's other Christians or you know, non-Christians, unbelievers, people are meant to see Jesus in us. And that, that's achieved through the Holy Spirit working in us. We're not meant to be ordinary. We might look ordinary in the sense that we look like any other human being. Um, but part of the supernatural gospel, part of being in his supernatural kingdom, is that God is pleased to reveal Jesus in us so that people find out what he's like. So the best compliment you can ever have as a Christian is someone saying to you, I see Jesus in you. And this lady moved into our road probably a year or two ago. 
And I walked past her once, said hello to her, and I looked in her eyes and I thought, I can see Jesus in your eyes. Or Jesus in you, not literally in the eye. He wasn't kind of squeezing himself into his eyeball. But, and a few months later, I think we met her again. Um, and I said that to her, and she was really encouraged. So I want to talk about this evening, really, is, is how is it that God wants to reveal his son through us? So shut your eyes, don't fall asleep. I want you to imagine, I'm going to describe a scene, and I want, to imagine it, I want you to imagine it, that you're in it and you're part of it. Um, so imagine this scene. Jesus has now been, I think, risen from the dead for about 40 days. As a disciple of his, you have seen him at least once since he's resurrected from the dead. He's gathered all of his followers on a mountain. And there's an excitement in the air. There's an expectation of what is Jesus going to do next. He gathers them close, gathers you with them, and he waits for everyone to be quiet, to hush down, because he's got something really important to say. And he says this, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, that's the last thing he said to his disciples. And then he ascended to heaven, comes into the throne room, sorry, <coughs> comes into the throne room of God, sits down at the right hand of God, and this is me ad-libbing a bit, a bit of artistic license, looks the Father in the eyes and says, it's finished. All sin has been atoned for. All sickness has been taken to the cross. Any shame by the perpetrator has been taken to the cross. Any damage or brokenness done to a victim through sin has been taken to the cross. It is finished once and for all. But God's salvation story doesn't end there. You might think it does, but it doesn't end there. Because what Holy Spirit does, and again with a bit of artistic license, he hands the baton to Holy Spirit at this point. But Jesus has done his bit. A significant, you know, uncomparable piece of God's salvation story by coming to earth, living and dying rising again and ascending to heaven and sitting at the right hand of God to symbolize that he has authority in all heaven and earth. But God's salvation story doesn't finish there because Jesus hands the baton to Holy Spirit. And could we pull up Acts 2, please? I'm just going to read you these verses. It's there, good. So just reading from verse 15. It says, in the last days, so this is from a... a Peter's quoting a prophecy in the book of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. <coughs> your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood 
before coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter goes on, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God had a deliberate plan. With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God has raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Just going down to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Father, sorry, in the name of the Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and all you are far off, and all whom your, the Lord our God will call. So what preceded these verses was the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples that were in the upper room. You'll know that story, where it was like tongues of fire on their head. A violent wind. And in Jerusalem at that time, at the Feast of Pentecost, the Bible literally says there were people from every nation under heaven and earth there. So God, what God did was a bit like what happens on social media today, that one event goes up on social media and it goes around the world really quickly. That's what God did. God saved that moment of Pentecost to show to the world that his Holy Spirit had been given. Didn't do it in the secret. Didn't hide away. He did it in front of people from every nation on heaven and earth. And when Peter stands up and he, he speaks this message that I've just read, he, the last verse that I, I read, the last couple of verses says, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is, is what has just happened to us in the upper room, if you repent and become a Christian, that will happen to you also. And when I talk about Jesus handing the baton over to Holy Spirit for his part in God's deliberate plan. It was to give the Holy Spirit and pour the Holy Spirit out on all people. He cannot underplay the significance of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Cannot do that, and I'm going to unpack that tonight. So if you go through that list in Acts 2, it describes things like this. It says, your, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Who, who prophesies here? There you go. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Who's seen a vision or had a dream from God? It's the majority of you. Even on my servants, both men and women. Men and women. <laughs> there we go. The quality, just right there. I will pour out my spirit on the days I will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Who's seen a miracle? Who's seen a miracle through, through their hands, their own hands by praying? God, we pray for more. For everybody. And then he makes this statement, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Follow the, the thread. The thread is, God will pour his spirit on all people. That's quite inclusive. Prophecy will happen. Visions will happen. Dreams will happen. There won't be a difference between men and women when the Holy Spirit comes. 
I feel myself getting drawn into an equality message. That's what I'm not doing tonight. Um, you know, wonders in heavens, you know, signs and wonders. And this statement that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, in, in, in the thread of this passage, there is no difference from a Christian being able to prophesy and people calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. All those things should happen to you or around you when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. So part of God's salvation plan to fill you with the Holy Spirit, yes, it's so you prophesy. Yes, it's so you have dreams and visions. Yes, it's so you can lay your hands on people and see them miraculously healed. But it's also that people around you will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You can't separate that verse from the rest of the list. It's not meant to be. But my observation is, from being charismatic Christianity in the, in the UK for decades, let's say how old I am, is nearly all the teaching that I've heard on baptism of the Spirit mentions all that other part of Acts apart from that last sentence. Yeah, so if we did a survey in here to give me good biblical reasons why you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you would give me many, because there are many good reasons. But very few people would say, so that people around me get saved got missed off the list somewhere maybe not in every church in every charismatic group in the UK which is obviously where my experience is so think think of the difference between the old covenant and new covenant when it comes to sin so the old covenant would say just going to read Isaiah 59:2, but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear Okay, in the Old Testament, sin separated you from God. You'll know that, that's not unexpected. In the New Covenant, Jesus would say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So in the Old Testament, people are far from God. And in the New Testament, unbelievers are near to God. Because Jesus has taken, has, has atoned for all sin. So the thing that separated people from God is dealt with once and for all. So if anybody teaches you about evangelism on the basis that people are far from God, they're in the Old Testament, not in the Old Testament, in the Old, Old Covenant. There's not a single person, unbeliever, that is far from God. Sin doesn't separate them from God in that sense, as it did in the Old Testament. Jesus would say... Go and heal the sick. He sent his uh, disciples to the to villages and say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Or in some translations it says, the kingdom of God is in within reach. God, or Jesus often say to unbelievers as well that you're near the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom, he would say to some individuals. If, if we start as a premise that it's difficult to get people, to, if it's difficult for people to be saved, that probably becomes self-fulfilling. Does that sink in? If you wake up in the morning and think there's no chance that anyone around me for the next week is going to get saved, it's probably going to happen. Probably going to happen. Because you live in the expectation of what you believe. If you believe that People that, so if I believe, sorry, get my words tongue tied there. If you believe that when you put your hands on people, people get miraculously healed, they probably will. 
Because if that's your expectation, you'll, you'll, you'll reach out and touch people, won't you? Because that's what you expect God to do through you. If you expect God to work through you to bring people to faith, again, it will probably happen. Because your expectation attracts God to work in you. That's how it works. Think about the moment that Jesus died. The Bible describes the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom, which is a miracle in itself, because you'd need, because the thickness of it and the size of it. Okay, and the, the temple curtain separated the holies of holies, which was the earthly dwelling place of God, and the earthly place of his presence in the temple, from the rest of the temple where other, where the, where the people worked. In the Old Testament, people couldn't get close to God. Only one person, the high priest, was allowed to enter the Holy of the Holies once a year to atone for sin. But when Jesus died to atone for sin, that practice doesn't need to happen anymore. And when that temple turn, what did I say? Temple curtain was torn. God was no longer contained behind that curtain in the holies of holies. If I can use that word contained, I'm thinking God can't quite be contained, but you know what I mean. There's lots of, you could, you could preach a lot of messages about the significance of that temple curtain being torn. But one of those significant things is that it's an evangelistic statement by heaven. Think about it. God is separate, hidden behind a temple curtain that you could say represents Jesus' body. When Jesus was torn apart on the cross, the temple curtain was torn, and the barrier between people and God has gone. That's what that symbolizes. It's an evangelistic statement by God that says, people are now near me, can reach out to me and find me. It means other things as well, which I'm not going to cover tonight. So let's not think that people are far from God. Think about if in the holies of holies, if if that's where God's presence was, if that's where the Holy Spirit was, to use New Covenant language, that means the Holy Spirit's gone out into the world because it's not contained just in in the temple. And this is what Jesus says. He says when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, so we're talking about the Holy Spirit has been poured out, not just on Christians, but has gone out into the world he says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you will see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So that is saying the Holy Spirit is... Um, at work, in Christian, non-Christian, sorry, all the way across the planet to prove them wrong about sin, righteousness and judgment. So there are more non-Christians on the planet than there are Christians. So just by a numbers game, you could argue that God is doing more in unbelievers than believers. It's not really theologically correct, but it's just an interesting thought. That means that God is already working in unbelievers. Yeah, so, and, and Jesus just explains that very briefly. He says, about sin, because people do not believe in me. 
If I can use the term, the crux of the gospel is that you believe in who Jesus is. He doesn't say God goes, the Holy Spirit goes out in the world to convict people of adultery or lying or cheating, though that does go on. He says the issue of sin is it stops people believing in who Jesus is. So when you become a Christian, yes, you repent of all your sin, but your repentance actually is primarily more about believing in who Jesus is and what he's done. Do you get that? That's what it's saying. You could possibly say that people sin because they don't know who Jesus is. It talks about righteousness because I'm going to the Father. So why is Jesus going to the Father? Because he's finished his sacrifice on the earth. Um, and Jesus has put everything in place for people to be born again. And judgment because the prince of this world stands condemned. It doesn't say that people stand condemned, it says the prince of this world. So the fact that Jesus died on the cross actually also condemned the devil for his lying. Yeah? And the Holy Spirit is going out in the world to actually tell people that, that God is not a liar. That's actually the devil. Actually that God is good. And actually he wants to rescue them. So again, a paradigm around evangelism is, so the first one I mentioned is that people are not far from God. The second one is that actually the Holy Spirit is already working in them. So as a a Christian, if I bump into a non-Christian and God invites me into an evangelistic moment to do something in their lives, I'm already joining in with what God is doing. How about that for a paradigm? When you leave your house tomorrow morning, do whatever your daily routine your paradigm is there's people that I'm going to come across will be all around me that God is already working in to bring to salvation. Maybe God wants to invite me in to help him. Or he delights to help, he delights for us to get involved and help him. Like, a, like we invite our children to do what we're doing. Okay. So God's, God's deliberate plan ushered in a time in history that we are still in where people are near to God. So when he talked about that statement, let me just read it properly. I'll misquote the Bible first. It says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That wasn't true before Jesus' death. And it has been true since his resurrection and the Holy Holy Spirit being poured out up to this moment and will remain true until, until God wraps up the world. You live in a time of history where everyone around you is near to the kingdom. And that's why we want to preach the kingdom, because the king, kingdom demonstrates that people are near to God. We had to, we were out, Fiona and I were out leading some evangelism in Guildford not long ago, six months, 12 months ago. And uh, it, was a, it was a group called Healing Guildford, I think that's what they were called. And we went out. We went out on the street, and they had lots of uh, ban- attractive banners. And uh, a lot of people would come up and get prayed for for healing, and people would get miraculously healed, because that demonstrates the nearness of God. We had teenagers come to us. One of my favourite things to do with teenagers is to say to them, "Have you ever felt the presence of God?" And they go, "No." And I say, "Can I hold your hand?" And they go, "Yes." And you pray for them, and they encounter. They usually, they, they, they usually, nearly every time we do this, they encounter God's presence from head to toe, and they feel peace in a way, or they feel hope. That can only happen if, people, if the kingdom of God is near to people and, that God are, and, and people are near to God. 
See, the Bible doesn't go, the Bible doesn't say, go and preach what I would call a conversion message. A conversion message focuses on, you're a sinner, you're far from God, you need to repent of your sins so you can come close to God and you can get into heaven before you die. That's a very classic, traditional way of preaching the gospel, but Jesus didn't do that, and nor did the disciples, if you read through the book of Acts. They preach the kingdom of God is near and within reach. That's their message. Just go to an online Bible and type in the word kingdom in the New Testament and see how many times it comes up. It's dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Because the, bringing the kingdom and let, you know, letting people feel the presence of God or prophesying what God thinks about them or bringing healing to them demonstrates the nearness of God so that people will reach out and find him. You don't have to preach a clever message. You don't have to know the answer to every difficult question there is that you might get asked by a non-Christian. You just need to demonstrate the nearness of God in your life and to them around you. It's not difficult to offer to pray for someone. I had a a boss a couple of years ago who damaged his foot um, and he was in a cast and it wasn't um, healing very well. And um, I'm always, sometimes, being evangelist, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm a bit cautious in the workplace um, because you don't want to offend or you don't want to get a bad reputation of saying Jesus all the time because you want to build rapport and you're getting paid to do a job, obviously. But I said to this guy, because I saw he was in a lot of pain, I'll pray for you. And normally I just want to put my hand on them and pray for them. But I felt God say, don't do it privately. So I prayed for him for a few weeks, privately. And then I happened to have a, one, a one-to-one with him, because obviously he was my boss, a one-to-one meeting. And he started the meeting by telling me that his legs started to get healed the moment I offered to pray for him. Come on. Yeah. And he knows now, he know now, he knows now that God is real. There was no arguing, no debating. I just prayed privately for a few days that God would speak to him. We cannot expect people to become Christians if we don't demonstrate the reality of the kingdom realm to them. It's that easy. It's not about a clever message, like I said, or answering all their difficult questions. So there is a place for that. But what I love about an Alpha course, for example, is people come on that and they experience the kingdom realm. Well, we, we did that for about 10 years in our previous church, and it was interesting that the, the, uh, the talk on healing was about three quarters of the way through the course. So we brought it into week three after you talk about the cross, because we could link healing as a result of the cross. And in the first two weeks on Alpha, people would have conceptual arguments about why God didn't exist. The third week is you'd have prophetic words about healing and Lots of them got healed, and all their questions changed overnight. So how does this work? I can see God is real. See, human logic says that people aren't interested in God. Kingdom logic says, demonstrate the kingdom in front of them, and they'll be interested. We've made evangelism so complex by missing the obvious, of putting reality of what Jesus achieves through his death and resurrection in front of people without being weird. <laughs> this is not difficult. I've got completely off topic. Oh, sorry, another thing. Another story. I've got stories coming to my mind. So one of the other things we do, we do on Alpha um, is that we, we're aware that a lot of people go to um, spiritualism and all sorts of different sizes and shapes of that. And it annoyed me that non-Christians would go and listen to a spiritualist and get an opinion of what a spirit, a spirit is saying. And we just thought, as Christians, we prophesy over each other all the time. We bring hope and encouragement. 
destiny and you know all that lovely stuff that we 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 encourage each other with as we bring the reality of god near to each other so we we would just take a bit of a risk we'd we'd say i'd say something like you know a lot of you might have been to spiritualists you might have heard people say stuff to you we want to show you what god wants to say to you is there any volunteers that want to hear that and a couple of people put their hands up we would bring them out the front we get some of the team together and we would just prophesy off the cuff to these to these people and there was this one girl who came up and uh I had a picture of her playing with Barbies on the floor, but it wasn't a few Barbie dolls. There was lots. There was, it was like all over the floor. And my friend who was prophesying with me saw her crying as if she was abroad in a destination with a winter sun or something. And her mum, who was also on the Alpha course, chin hit the floor. You know that expression means you thought we're onto something here. And she was going, no, I, I don't see the relevance of that. And her mum came up after us and said, she was playing with Barbie the moment when her dad walked in and said he was leaving us. And shortly after that, she went on a holiday with her mum and spent the, to a winter sun destination crying. You can hear a simple picture from God that profoundly impacts an unbeliever, but God knows their deepest, darkest moment. That's not difficult. We prophesy of each other all the time. Let me ask you a question. In 1900, there was one, one million Pentecostal stroke charismatic Christians. One million. Quick quiz question. How many are there today? Yes. I've got the right answer, obviously. So there's one million. How many today? Twenty. We need to go a bit higher than that. A lot higher. How many? Two billion, no, a bit lower than that. Not not Christians. So there was. So I'm talking about the importance of being a Pentecostal charismatic Christian because they are Christians that receive and pursue the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So in a, in a, just in a hundred years, there are now 700 million Pentecostal or charismatic Christians. It's just amazing, and there is a correlation between the growth of the church worldwide. And people that receive the Holy Spirit. So in the 1900s, there was a lot of revivals where the Holy Spirit got poured out. And so like today, if you include Catholics in, in the full breadth of who was a Christian in all the different denominations, one in four, so 27% of Christians worldwide are now Pentecostal, so charismatic. So the, the church has grown exponentially because one of the main reasons is it's because those that have been baptized in the Holy Spirit see more people saved than, than other church denominations by far. So when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, going back to this Bible verse, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The, the norm around the world is, yes, Christians that are baptized in the Holy Spirit prophesied, see miracles, but they see people saved around them. That's been the norm for a 100 years. It isn't just being the norm that you prophesy or have a dream or a vision or you see miracles. Actually, the norm is all those things and people get saved because the charismatic church has grown from one, um, sorry, one million to 700 in a hundred years. You cannot dismiss the link between being baptized in the Holy Spirit and seeing people around you because statistic, or biblically, I can argue it, but statistically, it proves that those that get baptized in the Spirit 
has seen the church grow at an exponential rate that has never been seen in the previous 1900 or 19th century. So let me give you some of the statistics. Again, the Pentecostal church has grown by 300 million in the last 10 years. It's profound. Absolutely profound. In India, 15,000 people a month are baptized. China, 30,000 people a day. Think about it. Put your head in the pillow tonight. 30,000 people just from China alone. They're growing at five times the population rate. There's more, there's more, there's more Christians in China than there are people in the United Kingdom. There's 80 million people. 80 million. That's the population of England more. Africa, 25,000 people a day growing at two to three times the birth rate in Africa. You know, despite 70 years of oppression in, you know, through the Communist Party in Russia, there are now 100 million Christians, Pentecostal charismatic Christians. That's five times the number that were in the, the uh, Communist Party at its height. A hundred years ago, Brazil and Korea had no Protestant churches. Today, Korea, 30% of the population of Korea is a Christian. In Brazil, so it's in a hundred years, there are now 50 million Christians. I'll say that again, there is a link between being baptized in the, I'm excited, between baptized, being baptized in the Holy Spirit and people becoming Christians. Because church history in the last hundred years has shown an explosion in church growth from Christians that are baptized in the Holy Spirit. The issue is, like I alluded to earlier, is most of the teaching we've had on being baptized in the Holy Spirit admits the part about God being near and people being able to call on his name and be saved. I used to, uh, I was part of a, uh, a group of churches and I even went and helped in seminars to help people be baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues who didn't. That was in a charismatic conference often. We went there once a year. And even in that setting, they didn't mention this. And people would come forward and they would prophesy and they'd be baptized in the Spirit and they would speak in tongues and it was glorious. But, you know, but it seems to have got missed. I need to, I need to land. So. So part of your God-given destiny, whatever your gift mix is, whatever your natural gifts are, whether you're creative, whether you're logical, whatever, you know, you're introvert, extrovert, whatever makes you you, part of your God-given destiny is that non-Christians around you experience the kingdom and want to reach out and find God. That's what I live for. I would get bored if it didn't happen. Just give you another story. I was thinking about this today. I haven't thought about this for years. This is probably about ten years ago. But I was speaking at Alpha one evening, and, that, and, I, and I had to fly to Glasgow and back for work. In between the moment I woke up, obviously, and I was speaking on on uh, the talk in Alpha that, that says, "What about evil and the occult?" So I was all prepped up on this subject. Went and did my day's work. It went really well. Uh, got in the taxi on the way back to the airport, and the taxi driver starts talking to me about poltergeists and demonic activity in his house and his family line. You know, and these are often characterized by coldness, noise, unexpected noises, fear, and other things. And it was affecting his children. And I just thought, this is a setup. I've read up on all this stuff. I'm doing a 45 or 30 minute talk later that day after I flew back home. 
and I've met this taxi driver. And we, we had a conversation, it was about half an hour drive to the airport. And I got to pray for him and his family and, and, and encouraged him to reach out and find God. See, another paradigm in evangelism, getting into a different talk, is that God sets us up for success. How about that? There's a lady who did, we do a dazzle course here to help people overcome their struggles with evangelism. Um, it stands for Developing a Supernatural Evangelistic Lifestyle. And there's this one lady on the course. And uh, you, we, give, we give people homework because, you, you know, you need to practice, don't you? To, do, to learn how to do stuff, whatever it is. And she, she was on a commuter train um, coming home from work and she got a word of knowledge about a lady in front of her who needed healing. And she, she felt a bit of healthy pressure because she had to come back the next week and t- share her story on the course. A bit of healthy pressure. And she felt, and she said to God, I want to do this. My heart is, I want to do this. I want to overcome my hindrances, my fear um, of speaking to a stranger, all that kind of stuff. But it's a crowded commuter train, and if I do this, everyone on the train will stop and listen to me. That's genuine, isn't it? That's just genuinely honest and real. And so she kind of prayed that and then just waited for God to do something. And at the next station stop, everybody on the train in that carriage, or everybody in her carriage, got off apart from her and the woman. (laughs) Who told you evangelism was difficult? Who told you? It doesn't say in the Bible. Does it? Does it? It's not there. It's not there. So let's stand with me. I need to finish. I could. Just ask God to come and touch you. I just want to ask you some questions just as we finish. And I just want to pray, Father, you come and touch these dear people. Touch us all here tonight, Father, that we would experience more of seeing unbelievers around us encounter your kingdom. So let me ask you some questions. Do you believe that Christ is in you? You don't have to answer. You can if you want to. You're very schooled in answering. Do you believe in his, his ability to work through you to bring the kingdom to believers? Because he believes in you to, that you can do that. And do you believe non-Christians are near to God and only need to experience the kingdom to be reconciled to him? Just for a few minutes, why don't you talk to God about this? You might want to say things like, help me realize the the full significance of me being baptized in the Holy Spirit. You might want to say, give me confidence to bring the kingdom realm to unbelievers. Whatever it is that stirred you in the last half an hour, 45 minutes or so, why don't you just for a few minutes, you respond to what you've heard and talk to Jesus and we'll pray to finish. So Father, I just pray for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit right now. I want to pray for us all, Father, that you'd increase our expectation that this week unbelievers are interested in you. That you increase our expectation that we can bring your kingdom, maybe in really simple ways, to unbelievers. That we can offer to pray for them with confidence that you'll do something in their lives. I want to pray for every one of us here not to have any doubts of your ability to work in us and through us to touch unbelievers. The same way we're confident you work in us and through us to encourage other Christians, that same confidence will be there for unbelievers. So I just want to pray off you fear. I want to pray off you doubt. I want to pray off you if you think you failed at evangelism before. And I just want to pray for you that God believes in you. That God loves partnering with you so that, he can, so that you can show people that God exists. He believes in you that you can do this. I'm confident in you can. 
I'm going to finish there, but if there's anybody who doesn't speak in tongues or isn't baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'd love to do that for you.